The following is a conversation with Timothy Lynch. Uh, Tim is Professor in American Politics and the Associate Dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. His most recent book is titled In the Shadow of the Cold War, American Foreign Policy from George Bush Senior to Donald Trump. On the podcast, we discuss, amongst other things, uh, the Cold War uh, and American politics, foreign policy and society in general. Uh, Tim's insights were illuminating and we had a great time on the podcast. If you like this conversation, subscribe and review it on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. generally like to start these conversations with uh, sort of broader questions uh, than perhaps what we're going to go into. But uh, I was thinking some, something you always hear about from uh, my parents' generation is about the fear of a nuclear war. Uh, people were very aware of the threat of nuclear bombs. Um, do you feel that that awareness has waned in my generation? And, you know, people seem to me anyway to not be as worried about nuclear war and would you would you agree with that and if so uh, why do you think that is yes I, I would agree with that that if you went back to to my parents generation which is a another generation back from from yours they're one of their first and most important fears and in some ways one propagated by the governments on under which they live was this fear of with, of, was a fear of nuclear war. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a good question that has a long um, and complex answer, but I think my my response would be that that fear of nuclear war, which was ever present in the 50s and 60s, certainly, if not a little longer into the 80s and the Reagan defence build-up, was informed by, in, in some important respects, by the experience of the Second World War, where if you grew up, um, my father grew up in London as a, as a toddler. Um, his first memory is Germans trying to kill him. It's not a huge, it doesn't require a huge leap to expect that fear to carry over into the next great threat, which came from from the Soviet Union and and you know, mass casualty, yeah, the targeting of civilians. I mean, that's been present since at least the First World War, if not before, was made a, a terrifying reality in the second. So the operating assumption of many people was that this would continue um, and be a, a good deal worse because the technology had increased. What's happened since? Well, I think with the end of the Cold War, the whole aura of of nuclear weapons has lost its appeal. When I was 20, um, it's starting to date me now, isn't it? But when I was 20 in the late 1980s, early 1990s, 
the just bef- I suppose if you dated it from when the when the just before the Cold War ended, the big sexy left wing cause was nuclear disarmament, campaign for nuclear disarmament, CND, and those that same demographic that will now march against climate change uh, or march on behalf of some rights claim. Uh, when I was that age, they were marching against. Uh, the American defense buildup and this fear of nuclear weapons, that's gone. It's been replaced by other global concerns like climate change, like global poverty, like uh, wealth disparity. Every, every other cause seems to have taken precedence over, over this, this fear of, of, of nukes. Um, and I suppose my final point here, Julius, would be, well, you would expect that, wouldn't you? With the end of ideological contestation, in terms of the Soviet Union versus the US and the US-led camp, with that with that now ended, why worry about the the, the means that were that were devised to to realise uh, and weren't great? You know, thank God used that 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 of nuclear weapons. You would expect with the demise of ideology, you have a demise in the fear of of nukes. But those new, I mean, mankind is perpetually frighted by something. Um, and those fears have have morphed into, into new fears, all presaging catastrophe, right up to the present day with the fear of, of COVID, all of which in, in some, some ways are real, and yet always in some important res- respects exaggerated. So you think that the lack of ideological combativeness between the superpowers with nuclear bombs, uh, that's sort of neutralised the threat of nuclear bombs. Yes, I think the, the end of ideology, and I think I'd even apply that today, that I think in important respects there is still an ideological struggle going on between the West broadly conceived and China and its allies broadly conceived. I think the ideology is a pretty consistent theme in human affairs. The difference is now that it that that contestation doesn't have the the hair trigger quality of the Cold War, and men and women were conditioned through uh, events like the the Cuban Missile Crisis to expect war not to come by as a matter of choice and of calculation, but by accident. Um, Abel Archer in the 1980s, very famous, now increasingly famous episode where it it, it seems uh, the Soviet Union was about to launch a preemptive strike because they thought the Americans were about to do the same. And I don't see that replicated in contemporary international relations. It doesn't mean that the threat of nuclear war is non-existent, but it's far less present. If you think of how most people um, have have died in the in the post Cold War era. It's been in very traditional ways, um, as a matter of wars against terrorism or in in civil wars, uh, predominantly in the in the in the Middle East, and perhaps in the West, we've lost this notion that we are we do face threat. When threat comes, it's a biological threat or a, a climactic threat. I don't see students marching against Chinese power, even though it's Chinese power which has a is has is nuclear armed, they're marching against global threats. Um, so these 
and you're asking good questions, these these uh, psychological responses are common across the human experience, I think, but their source does change. It's almost like it's got to the stage where rather than actually being used nukes or the development of nuclear weapons has almost just become a prerequisite to a certain type of geopolitics that a country wants to play. If you want to play with the big boys, you have to yes. have a certain amount of nuclear weapons, but they're irrelevant apart from that. Yes, they're important ways of displaying power. And the more you display power, the less you actually have to use it. So it's no accident, I think, that Great Britain, as it, as it was going into a very great decline after the Second World War, made getting nukes a way of balancing that. Um, it gives exactly. you a prestige and a, and a, and a platform that not having them would deny you. So, yes, I, we're not turned on by nukes in, the, in quite the same way, but states that get them tend to keep them. I mean, there's only one example I can think of a state that's willingly denuded itself of its, of its nuclear uh, capacity or not of, if not of its capacity, of its aspirations, and that's Libya. And look what happened to that regime. Um, you can see why North Korea is very invested in the maintenance of this of this uh, of this capacity because it gives it a, a prestige, an air of invulnerability, and political capital. which no no other state has been prepared to to, to give up. France, Israel, Britain, I mean, they all get nukes and keep them, even though then they don't form part of the political psychology. I think in the way they once did. But it gives you a political capital. It does. It shows that you've arrived, that you've, uh, you're not just wealthy and free. You're powerful and you're willing to defend yourself. I mean, this is certainly the reason why states pursued the nuclear capacity. Whether it still determines their, their – I mean, there's a good, good degree of path dependence built into this, that once you've got them, you need to maintain them and replace them. They're not, they, they can't be archaically powerful. They have to be modern and current. Um, but it is, uh, I mean, I'm a realist, realist on these things, Julius, that when states get power, unless they're crazy or, or they miscalculate, they don't seek ever to lose the power. Power is a very important currency for states and for people, power and or security. Um, so I always think that this, this claim that if we all just, come together and the, the, through organisations like the UN and international law, will end this, the state's quest for power and security. I, do, I don't believe it. Um, and no amount of, if I might come on to this, but the, the single greatest ingredients, ingredient and force for peace is not law. It's it's a nation of laws. It's the it's the preeminent nation of laws. It's the US, um, which rather ironically has been the great champion of international legal process. But it's the fact of American power, which accounts for stability in the world, and 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 its absence for a good deal of instability. But it's got very little to do with us. This these broadly construed this left wing notion that we can all just get along. No, it requires a, a, a powerful liberal democracy to enable that to happen. Well, that's something I've always found remarkable about to what you were saying about taking a realist approach to power and uh, the way countries wield it. Um, I've always found it remarkable 
that America had restraint when it had a four-year monopoly on the nuclear bomb. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think Stalin would have refrained from taking over the world had he had the bomb. Um, were there people within Truman's government who were essentially urging him to do just that, take over the world, um, make every country bend the knee? Yes, it's a, that's a very interesting question, of course. And uh, I think it's it's the most remarkable thing. One shouldn't speak, of course, in absolutes, but I think this is pro- probably one of the most remarkable things about US power is given its capacity and, and in a very particular moment after after the Second World War, when it has a nuclear monopoly, the mo- the remarkable thing is how it doesn't use it. I mean, I mean, part of this is it has a technical explanation that you're not dealing with a deployable uh, 1940s nuclear technology is not the same as 1980s or t- or 2020s. So there's that it, it couldn't go around. Um, making threats confident that it had the technology to carry them through but that's that seems to me secondary to the the the, the real question is given the amount the capacity it had why didn't it use it more um and it's it's a question that applies across its history but certainly since its rise to global superpower status why does a, a state that is in possession of the, the the most powerful military machine in world history not use it or use it very, very uh, mildly. Uh, this whole caricature of America being an imperialist power is just that. It's a falsehood. It's a caricature. Um, and many of America's opponents across the last 100 years have all made the mistake of thinking if they had as much power as America did, they would use it. Um, and they come unstuck because they find America is not willing to use it or is only prepared to use it when it becomes absolutely unavoidable. So it's, it's. I mean, I've called this, and I'm not the, not the only scholar to do so, the sins of omission. It's what America doesn't do or where it goes um, half-heartedly that requires explanation. It should be a huge, great bullying force in world politics, and it's not. The great fear of the Trump administration was that he would withdraw and retrench US power, not that he would overextend it. But the, if you look at the Chinese tradition of statecraft, certainly in its communist guise, or of the Russian, to take two of the most recent competitors, but you could include fascist Italy and Germany and Japan, they've all been premised on the notion if they could have as much military power as the United States, they'd be capable of of acting on it, realizing global hegemony, was America has it, and its hegemony is almost entirely freely chosen by those subject to it. Um, so it's, it's a state that's fa- founded on this tr- distrust of power, has, a, has more power than any other state in world history, but doesn't use it. That's always struck me as a something requiring explanation. But it's interesting as well because that obviously serves in juxtaposition to the lack of restraint in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, I've always wondered why Truman didn't just, maybe this is naive, but why Truman didn't just march the emperor into the Nevada desert, demonstrate the power of the nuclear bomb uh, and just demand his surrender rather than dropping it on. Yes, I think, yes. Okay. I mean, I I think that's applying a. But it's it's interesting having the restraint that they showed after that, juxtaposed with the fact that they did that in the first place. 
Yes, I mean that's an interesting argument, which I'd be happy to have with you. I, I mean, I, I think it's the, there is some irony, isn't there, in claiming America is this nation of great restraint, and yet it's the first one to to use the, an atomic bomb on a civil civilian population. But uh, I suppose the one has to factor in the context of the Second World War, and that was the way of ending a war begun by a surprise attack by the Japanese. And they'd done far worse, of course, in 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 Tokyo using conventional armaments. So why not drop the bomb and bring it to a, a swift conclusion? I think there's a whole host of realistic military reasons that America drops the bomb twice on. on why, um, why did they have to drop it twice? I've never understood. Uh, this, well, they, they, the first one to, to let Japan and at this point the Soviet Union know they had a nuclear capacity and the second one to demonstrate that they could mass produce it. So they, the fact that they had two means it wasn't a one-off. Right. Um, I mean, one could argue about the morality of this, but the, the fear instilled, the, the caution instilled in Moscow was that they'd come up with one and they they produced two. If they can produce two, they can produce 100. Um, and that circumspection, I think, not doesn't only explain why the second one is used. But it's an important uh, marker. And I also think that but the basic moral dilemma um, facing Truman was how can I realise the defeat of my opponent without sacrificing another 100,000, 500,000 American soldiers? And his calculation was, oh, well, I do that by dropping this bomb and forcing their capitulation much quicker than otherwise would be the but, case. But wouldn't they have capitulated uh, regardless of whether he dropped them on civilians or on no one at all? If you document, well, we don't. Yes, I mean, I, again, I think we're arguing out of the context of the Second World War. Mm. We're applying a, a, a contemporary standard to to conduct. Well, both sides at this point had been, I mean, quote, guilty of war crimes against the other by modern definitions. The firebombing of of Coventry, of Dresden, of Tokyo, um, a bigger bomb. This is pre the psychological. Uh, um, uh, approach to, to nukes, this great fear of nukes. Um, it was just a bigger bomb that you used to, to to beat the enemy. Well, that would that commanded huge consensus in the in amongst Western populations at that at that point. Do you think that nuclear bombs, uh, while almost perpetuating a kind of peace, uh, in that we don't we don't really have hot wars between superpowers anymore, but while it perpetuates a kind of peace, it's sort of hamstrung. Uh, certainly the West from interfering in human rights violations in countries that themselves have nuclear bombs. Yes. I mean, I think there are... Yes, I think we can exaggerate the extent to which nuclear weapons pacified conflict. I mean, men have always fought each other for as long as we're able to document. But you're right in that what you need... what you nuclear weapons allow you to avoid is nuclear war. I mean, it's a tautology, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it does mean when you get a... I would prefer a cold war. Now, I know the war is not cold if you're in Vietnam in the 60s um, or in Guatemala in the 1980s. It's not a cold war. But in terms of the protagonists, it's a much more efficient, effective, moral way of fighting a war because you, your own side does much less dying compared to conventional war. So it, it does, it stabilises what might otherwise have been 
a much more problematic conflict. We think of the, the West from 1914 to 1945 is at war with some autocracy, some notion um, of, of German militarism, German socialism, Soviet socialism. It's a long civil war across across Europe waged against this not not consistent opponent, but broadly common opponent. And the way you realise that is through expenditure of, of blood and 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 arms. The Cold War nukes allow you to avoid that. We can have an ideological competition in which we won't actually kill Russians and Russians won't kill us. Others will do the dying on our behalf, those without a nuclear capacity. Um, so it does, John Lewis Gaddis, great historian of the Cold War, calls this a long peace rather than a Cold War. And of course, it, it that applies if you're living in London or Paris or Moscow. It doesn't apply if you're living in Hanoi or in uh, Pyongyang. These become the proxies for a, a larger war. And of course, historians that study the, the Cold War in the developing world, I think, have a very important argument to make about that. Do you just find it in general, though, remarkable that we haven't had a nuclear war yet? I mean, I, it just seems from uh, from 1945 to now, like we've just been walking a tightrope of uh, tensions between certain countries, the amount of close calls with it. Even, I mean, I think there's even a big risk of uh, nuclear war occurring just by accident or a misunderstanding. There's, I can't remember the, um, the specifics of it, but there was, uh, who was the, the Russian uh, in a nuclear in a nuclear submarine, and all the computers started going off saying that all the nukes from America, no, not all the nukes, about um, ten nukes from America were coming to Russia, and he was that close to making a call to uh, Khrushchev and you know all that nuclear war, but he determined that yeah. uh, if they were going to send their nukes, they'd send all of them. So he thought it was a mistake, and it was a mistake. The the computer was just malfunctioning. So how how I just find it remarkable that we haven't had more accidents. Uh, with with these yes. weapons, yes, it, it, it could. Be, I mean, there are two possible explanations. One is that we're just lucky, and that errors have not led to escalation. And the other is that because of their nature, they're subject to all sorts of checks and balances within each each uh, government that, that has access to them. So, I mean, and, and and this claim that they've not been used because of the inherent threat that they the threat of mutually assured destruction that's a very good argument until it's not until there is an accident or a miscalculation um but it, it is i do find it i'm not trying to get us away from nukes but it is remarkable that the great fissures in global politics now really haven't got anything to do with nuclear capacity. It's, it's lost its appeal as a mobilizing issue it might be on the agenda of your kind of woke social justice warrior it's other things that have replaced nukes and nuclear disarmament on that on that agenda. Um, Such and as? Is one, well, it's those that, that mobilise now and, and the cause of, of both argument and and consensus would be um, would be climate change, would be the the, the role of uh, 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 the role of China. Um, COVID, obviously, these are the great fissures which have very little, if anything, to do with with uh, nuclear technology. I mean, one could argue, and we digress here, but 
one could argue our psychoses, which we've inherited from the Cold War about nuclear power, make what could be a, a much more straightforward solution to climate change much harder. That we connect nuclear with some always it's always evil or nefarious when we forget it's just it's just a technology which we are we could argue and our harnessing of it gave us a in the west a degree of stability and peace and our harnessing of it as a way of countering climate change could also be to our benefit but with that that's not the argument that is uh, that divides people now we divide on other issues i think and, and issues of culture and identity more than we divide on this what you, what we thought would be the defining feature going forward uh, that that of nuclear weapons i uh, just mentioned china and that being one of the more relevant uh, fissures in global politics uh, i saw 3 days ago that two dozen scientists have penned an open letter calling for an international forensic investigation to take over the uh, WHO's probe into uh, the origins of COVID. This is uh, partly because uh, China's withholding evidence and uh, partly because there's uh, a growing number of experts who believe that uh, COVID might have actually uh, leaked from the virology lab in Wuhan. Um, Do you think China's cooperation in this investigation or lack thereof is going to accentuate uh, tensions between China and America uh, to breaking point? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party are in a, they're between a, a rock and a hard place on this. If, um, if they were to divulge, if they were to, to allow the completely open access that many in the US are calling for, well, it could be that they, they end up revealing some accident that they'd rather conceal. That's that's the rock. The hard place is um, if they don't allow themselves up for inspection of the kind the West requires, um, they're going to be demonised as 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 concealers of the truth. Um, I, it's always struck me, Julius, that the, the the key determinant of Chinese power, Chinese communist power, is not some bid for global dominate global domination or even regional domination it's the requirement to stay in power um this regime is what 70 years old um barely just over 70 years old I mean, it's a teenager in global power terms we know the chinese nation of course is an ancient civilization but it, in its new guise it's a teenager and like a teenager it's subject to bouts of insecurity and struggles with its identity. And this just staying in office is the central objective of the Communist Party. And I think the, the first appropriate way to understand its response to COVID is how far its behavior serves that purpose. And I think COVID has chastened uh, the, the party more than it's emboldened it. It's made the world much more skeptical of its claim to technological efficiency. This is the great claim. We're no longer ideological. We're technocratic. We are producing not just stability, but prosperity without all the messiness of democracy. Well, COVID challenges that. It says perhaps they weren't as technologically, technocratically 
enabled and skilled as we were led to believe. Um, so part of its its whole marketing pitch has been undermined. The whole the whole situation, if it is uh, a lab leak, uh, that the whole thing reminds me of uh, Chernobyl, and similarly mm. dealing with a, yeah. a communist government that's too proud to show its mistakes. Uh, and you know, yeah, it, it, there, there seem good. to be a lot a lot of parallels between the two. Yes, very good analogy. I think that Julius, that uh, not perfect, but no analogy is perfect. That one of the, the the problems of any one party system is that it's prone to when it makes an error. The United States, I mean, I'm a specialist on the US, and where America should be weak, and where its behaviour should have spelled disaster, it didn't. So, for example, America has one of the most diffuse, discordant. Uh, multivarious political systems in world history. I mean, it's, a, it's premised on the notion that power has to be contended and argued over. Nobody gets to hold it for very long. Now, you would expect it to be weak as a consequence, internally divided, disputatious, and those systems that, which are predicated on the rule of one man, usually is a man, or of one class, or of one race, whatever your defining feature is, these should be much more powerful um, and they turn out not to be. Giving all the power to Stalin or Hitler is disastrous for German and, and, and Soviet power. Um, so it's the ability to, I think, to sift, to argue, to contend, which has given America a robustness in the face of regimes premised on the opposite. And that still afflicts China. So much of Chinese power hangs on one man. And he is, a, a, I mean, he's painted as a, a as a, as an emperor, if not as a god, and yet deep down, uh, they know that. I mean, communism tells them that there is no such thing as a deity in politics, and yet so much still hangs on the uh, on the perfection of of Xi Jinping. So I would I would still rather have America with all, all its imperfections, even under a, a Trump, than I would the precarious political system on which China hangs. Because of this, this focus on one on on one leader, it's almost like a great paradox of liberal democracy that suspicion of power uh, boosts that power. Yes, I think that's that's well well said. The the, the political system that was f- founded on a distrust of political power, the United States, ends up with more of it than states premised on the ruthless accumulation and centralization of power. So most of these regimes in the last hundred years have fallen in the face of uh, competition, if not invasion, from this state which distrusts political power. Now, I find that endlessly fascinating and quite bracing. Um, and inspiring but, in, a, in a way as well. Well, yes. I mean, I think yeah, we, we can over-romanticise it, but, it's, but uh, you can under-romanticise it as well. But a state that uh, really doesn't like any one group having too much power ends up with more power than regimes premised on the opposite concern. And it's a, it's a misreading of American psychology that America's competitors recurrently um, make. They're always, they always end up in error. They misread American intentions, which is why I think um, we haven't seen this global coalition against US power form despite what many realists argued and many communists argued, 
that most people in the world, even if they don't buy into whichever administration is, is in office, have some feel for what the American project is. Limited government, individual rights, free trade, stability. These are all, I mean, they're not perfectly distributed around the world, but they have a subversive allure that no rival system has ever been able to compensate for. Which is why I think the United States still has some considerable distance to run. Still think American power has better prospects over the next century than Chinese power does. Chinese power is so vulnerable because it's premised on, as we've discussed, the deification of one man and the, and the perfection of one party. America isn't. It survives any number of really dud presidents and gridlock and decline and whatever else and still manages to come through, leading a club that most other nations of the world want to join. That's not true of Chinese power. It was... Um... I think Norman Mailer once said that the amazing thing about America is that anything you say about it is true. You know, it's in many ways the most evil country in the world, in many ways the greatest country in the world, in many ways the most racist country in the world, in many ways, you know, the least racist. Yeah. It's got it's got uh, aspects of everything and perhaps that's where it has its strength. Yes, America is the working out of the human condition. Um, and if if you're inclined to hate it, There's a lot, there are lots of things to hate. Um, and if you love it, there are lots of reasons to love it. It's too pornographic, it's too Puritan, too religious, too secular, too centralised politically or uh, versus too free. Um, it, it is, uh, it's made up almost by definition of every kind of person the, the world produces. Um, and it, I mean, we dwell on its imperfections, but it, given the material with which it has to work, what is remarkable is its success, not its, not its failure. Um, and it remains a pole of attraction for men and women around the world that no other state is able to match. America gives out something like a million green cards. I mean, it just says, if you're bright and educated, come and live here um, and you can be part of the American system. Was China much more selective, about a thousand green cards, many to basketball players. They, there's no equivalent to Silicon Valley in China. Um, and Silicon Valley, of course, is great. I mean, I, think, I don't know about you, but what you're wearing on your head now or tapping in front of you or looking at is in some ways, it may have been made in China, but it's inspired by those clever people that, that work in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's not a universal truth, but it's pretty much a truth. And, and China, um, it, it said, it's Joseph Nye said this, I can't claim to have made this claim myself, but what China is good at is creating um, iPhone jobs. What they can't create is Steve Jobs. They're able to marshal huge technological capacities because of their population, but the communists have not found a way of of generating the creativity which comes from free market capitalism of the Silicon Valley variety. As in sort um, of uh, in innovation doesn't lend itself to a uh, communist culture? No, it's it's uh, that they haven't learned. You can hang on to power as a communist state. Can you innovate? Um, no, you can copy. And, and much of the Chinese 
Chinese communist history is imitation, if not copyright theft, in order to keep up with the West. There is something about the West, I mean, this is a broad definition, but there's something about free market capitalism, which has given America a technological edge, which the communist regimes all contended they were able to do, but just never have. Um, and that, again, without being a cheerleader for, for America, this does give America a continued edge in any conflict with any global rival. In fact, China, it requires the huge American market to sell the stuff that its, its factories produce. So you have that remarkable situation in world affairs where the two apparently global competitors each have a profound vested interest in the maintenance of the other. China to produce all the stuff that Americans want and America to consume all the stuff the Chinese produce. And that is unusual, if not unique in world affairs. It's almost like a positive feedback loop. Just yes, like one a, feeds the other. A, yes, it, it does. I mean, that, I mean, this is one of the central arguments in contemporary international relations. Is that enough? to preclude conflict between them. I mean, I don't just mean cyber um, or trade economic war. I mean, does that enough to preclude a, a nuclear exchange, a, a hard war, but hard power war between them? And history offers a number of different answers to that, to that question. I think that the, the, the codependence, the interdependence that mark the relationship between them, make war difficult to imagine. But in 1914, war was un, unimaginable between two advanced Western um, nations, Germany and, and Britain, with substantial cultural overlap and exchange and um, educational empathy and trade. None of this was enough to preclude war between them. If that's the analogy that explains where we're going, well, God help us. But it, it, it's of an order of magnitude less than the interdependence we see between Washington and Beijing in the, in the current moment, I think. Do you see Xi Jinping as the defining variable in China's actions? I mean, China, as far as, I mean, limited understanding of their history, but they were kind of on the strata narrow path towards coming into the global community uh, until 2013, when Xi Jinping took over, uh, he seems to be the driving force behind a lot of these aggressive tensions. Yes. And the, I think I dispute this idea that they were on a kind of smooth, linear pathway to, to um, being a good global player. I mean, the, the Communist Party has been very good at exploiting um, deficiencies in in the global system. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, before it's an ideological power, it's also a nationalist power. The inheritor of several millennia of, of, of Chinese self-conception. Um, and, and I think in some ways she has not countered that. She should be seen in, in, as, as, as continuous within that, that his first priority is the maintenance of Chinese order, something that until really until the 1970s, Chinese citizens were denied, either through the depredations of, of Western imperialism and the unequal treaties, or the ca catastrophic 
decision making of the Communist Party itself, which starved to death somewhere between 30 and 40 million people in the late 50s and 60s. We even get to the, the dislocations and absurdities and inhumanities of the cultural revolution. This is a system that requires order and stability, and that's what she is about. I think she is a good enough reader of power politics to know that the best way to counter Japanese power, much more ancient opponent of the Chinese than, than America, the way to counter the threat of Japan is to allow America to continue to contain it, something America has been doing since 1941. So there is, there is a market for American power in China's backyard, which is going to make uh, this, sim this, this, this simple claim that China wants to remove America from the Asia-Pacific is always going to be in some way ahistorical. China has done, it fought on America's side, of course, and Australia's side and Britain's side, the Allied side in the Second World War against the Japanese. The problem of Japan for China was ultimately solved by the application of US power in China's backyard. And that calculation, that observation, has not changed markedly over the last 80 years. He seems to me, though, to really embody the sort of vengeful undertone to China's politics. They, he seems to be, and perhaps it's because of uh, what they experienced at the hands of the Japanese in the Second World War and in the 1930s in general, but he, there seems to be this vengeful undertone to the ascent of China at the moment, and he's spearheading that. Yes, I, I think... Um... Well, we'll see, won't we? I mean, he talks big about uh, Taiwan, and it doesn't seem to me to be unimaginable that he would take military action to reclaim it. I think unlikely, but not unimagin unimaginable. I think Hong Kong, again, he's it's not a, a, a simple and obvious repression because Hong Kong is so vital, not just to the perceptions of Chinese communist power, but to Chinese communist wealth and to destroy the freedoms that have made Hong Kong such an impressive experiment of, of British imperialism, to just to destroy it. And again, I think he would understand some of the consequences of that. It's the Uyghurs I, I would point to. And these aren't an example of the manifestation of some Chinese superiority, but a profound fear of national instability, that they suppress the Uyghurs, not because they believe themselves superior to them, but because generations of Chinese leaders, not just the communists, but going back hundreds of years, their profoundest fear has been of, of, of um, factionalization, of the breakup of China. And any group which threatens that stability, that order, is going to find themselves in, in the crosshairs of any Chinese government. So it, it doesn't, I don't think she, to answer your question directly, is a manifestation of some new proud Chinese imperialism. He is the latest exponent of this desperate quest for stability and order, which has characterized all uh, statecraft in China for the last hundred years, communist and non-communist. And we forget that. I mean, without picking on Australians, Australians really only no order. The last hundred, I mean, the whole, there is no civil war in Australia's history. 
the issues we create are, in relative terms, quite small um, compared to the, the instabilities to which China has been prone. Um, and we forget that. Um, and I think we need to be cautious of China, not because it's strong and emboldened, but because it's weak and it's vulnerable. And that's what COVID, I think, has played up. Do you think there is a racial element to the situation with the Uyghurs or is it purely driven by uh, a desire for unity? Uh, or uh, no, do, you think, I think do, do you think the persecution of them, one follows the other, essentially? If it is just for unity, yeah, so I, a racial element is going yeah. to come into it. Yes, yeah, so I, I think race is, 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 is at once the most one of the most important features of all human affairs and also one of the most exaggerated for its effect. Um, I don't think they need to, I mean, China in, in lots of ways is a racially uh, very diverse place. The concern with that diversity is when it leads to instability. They've always had a much more sceptical notion of Islam than the West has had. Uh, after 9-11, China, you know, many sec sections of the Chinese Communist Party were rubbing their hands with glee that finally America now would understand the threat posed by Islamism, a threat that China has been count, count, countering for decades, centuries. Russia had a similar approach. Um, so I, I don't think it needs to be a racial one. I don't think the Chinese communist fear of Islam is, is, is racially, I mean, they have racial overtones. It's fundamentally a concern with the instability that that kind of separatism can cause. Um, and that's what explains their, their, their desire to re-educate. Um, same with Tibet. I, I think Tibet is not primarily an ideological war against a Buddhist people. It's a concern that Tibet was, a, was an outlier, was the source of instability and of separatism that needed to be quelled. And they would say the same about the United States. That Abraham Lincoln's concern was not to destroy the South. It was to keep the nation together. The same applies to China. The absolute first imperative is the maintenance of our territorial integrity. And that explains why the, the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and the, and, and the Hong Kongers are in Beijing's sight at the moment, because they are sources of of. Uh, of separatism, of instability, of uh, factionalization. Do you think if the persecution of the Uyghurs escalates, uh, America will be obliged to interfere? And do you see that as the most probable breaking point in tensions between the US and China? No, I, I, I think that the Uyghurs are perfectly capable of being ignored by the United States, if not by large portions of Western popular opinion. It's just not a cause that animates us very much. Um, it's seen as an internal party matter. Um, even before you start factoring into responses to 9-11 and the war on terror, that America is denied a capacity to influence Chinese power in its own backyard. Same applied to the Soviet Union. Um, every, every president at some point, is from, from Truman up through uh, Ronald Reagan, it, it, their ambitions in the Soviet Union's backyard were always going to be circumscribed by facts of geography. Um, you can't do much about the uh, 
the invasion of, of Czechoslovakia and Hungary, um, or after the fall of the Soviet Union of, of Georgia and Ukraine, because it's not your theatre. Um, same applies to, to China. No American president is going to go over go to war over how Beijing treats an ethnic minority. Just seems to me impossible to imagine. It raises an interesting question about Hitler. Then it's like, would were we not at war with uh, the Germans, and we just found out that they were uh, committing a genocide? Would the allies have would the allies have you know attacked? Would they have would yes. they have attacked the Germans? And and it's quite a it's quite an interesting uh, moral question then because it's like what are it's, our obligations? Yes, it's a, it's a, it is a very good question, and I think the uncomfortable answer is is, is probably no. Um, it's only after the second only after the end of the Cold War, where America is is able to indulge a, a more humanitarian emphasis. And it's never, ever an exclusively humanitarian emphasis. But if you compared American intercession in Yugoslavia, the tipping point becomes the perception of the treatment of, of ethnic minorities, particularly of the, of, of the Muslims, certainly true in Kosovo in 99. Um, without that basic injustice, or certainly packaged as an injustice, a bit more complicated than that, but... Um, you wouldn't get American involvement. I don't think that's true of the Second World War. And uh, the European theatre, I think, would have been, I mean, it's a counterfactual, it's hard to know, but without the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour, um, you, the Second World War could have been fought to some sort of peace um, with Germany controlling Europe, Eurasia, and America perfectly content to have a, have a Cold War with it as it ended up, it ended up in a cold war against another form of of socialism uh, a little later. So I I think that humanitarian rationale is a factor, but it's often not depressingly. One could argue, often not the determinative one. That nations do what they do not to make foreigners happy, but to realise their own power and security. But it's so depressing then just to think that the affirmation of never, never, and never again, uh, which is, you know, one of the most sort of important cultural affirmations of the 20th century is this idea yeah. that this can never happen again. It's just depressing to think that that claim lacks yes. teeth and that it's there's really nothing yes. that will stop that from happening again. Yes, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great question to ask and I think – the blame for it is several. Um, I'd, I'd remind you, I think, that part of the problem is we now have a political debate in, in which the left, again, broadly construed, their first concern is to negate US ambitions and power, um, which is fine, but the consequence of that is that some bad regimes end up staying in power because the, the greater concern of the, the posturing left is to is to end American imperialism. What what if you need American imperialism, liberal imperialism, in order to right some of the wrongs that the left are always very keen to diagnose? Um, I think that's a. I think the Iraq War. Um, I don't think the left really recovered from their insistence that Saddam Hussein stay in power because that was preferred to uh, a rebirth of American imperialism. 
So we, we've got a debate which is in 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 lots of respects skewed against the application of, of power for humanitarian purposes because we no longer trust the United States. But in the absence of American power, the absence of, if you don't legitimize the behavior of a liberal democracy in pursuit of humanitarian, partially in, in pursuit of humanitarian objectives, then you, you cannot sanction and approve any action on behalf of any vulnerable community. But that's, that's where the left has, has, has got, I mean, it's not, it sounds like I'm just having a, I'm having a kick the left session. But if you posture on doing the right thing of liberating men and women from bad government, but that takes second place to ending American imperialism, well, you're gonna you, you're gonna end up achieving neither. Well, that's been one of that was one of the main arguments of um, your book, wasn't it? That the actions of America uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union uh, have Perhaps, perhaps not been interventionist enough and uh, lacked teeth uh, when it comes mm. to when it comes to um, wars will be started in quite a half-hearted fashion um, yes. rather than yeah. uh, with a clear intent on how it's going to be resolved. Yes, no, that's that's well said, and I do find it perplexing that America, given its capacity, always chooses to to use as little of it as possible. And that decision often creates huge consequences for uh, the men and women subject to this very limited uh, power. And it, it, I mean, it has a, its history is, is it, it's not confined to the post-Cold War era, but it's particularly evident there. If you looked at um, the refusal to do anything about Rwanda, the, the fastest killing spree, certainly given the technology available to the uh, machetes perpetrators, the fastest killing spree in world history. Mm. Um, And America, I mean, it's in in part, they get round having to do anything about it because of the rapidity of the, of the killing. But the American response is this is not, not our fight. And if a Western power to become engaged in Africa, that's, that's colonialism. Um, and the consequences of this moral purity was was uh, was a million million de- dead in Rwanda, but so it it has a starting point there, but you can see it also in in the Iraq War. Let's go in on the cheapest terms possible. Let's deploy deploy the fewest number of troops to realise the 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 smallest of or simplest of missions, the decapitation of the regime, then we will get the heck out of Dodge. We won't be an imperial imperial occupying force. Now, the consequence of that was a remarkable quick victory in the ending of the Saddam Hussein regime. The consequence was catastrophe, not least for the Iraqi people themselves, but also for America's long-term ambitions in the region. But, Julius, I I think you're right. These stem from this concern that if we do less, we'll win approval. If we go in light, we can get out cheap. And it doesn't, it hasn't, since the end of the Cold War, since Germany and Japan and the long-term occupations of those nations, it ain't worked. Um, Mm. But if you want to turn bad regimes into 
stable liberal democracies. It requires the application of long-term military occupation and huge economic subvention, both of which America has lost the appetite to engage in. I feel that the invasion of Iraq, at least in a historical context, occurred quite recently. Um, And I get the sense that there's uh, still some confusion as to how we are meant to assess what took place. Um, How did the war in Iraq fit into the story of America's foreign policy? Uh, And was it a necessary conflict or was it as flawed as, I don't know, movies like Vice make it out to be? Well, it's very... If you were to measure the Second World War in... 1960, if you're doing a retrospective, was the Second World War War worth fighting? And it it begins because uh, Great Britain declares war on Germany because Germany has invaded Poland. If you made Poland's health, Poland's status, the determinant of whether the Second World War was worth it, by 1960, you would have to answer no. Britain goes to war um, for Polish freedom, and by 1960, Poland is subjugated by uh, by communism. The Second World War, ipso facto, was a failure. Now, I think you can transpose the position of Poland in 1960 with that of Iraq now. Was the Iraq war worth it? Well, not if you look at the sectarian nature of Iraqi politics or the power Iran has realised in the region because of the failure of the Iraqi experiment. Ipso facto, the Iraq war wasn't worth it. Now, you could say, well, how long are you going to wait, Lynch, to make before you admit the, the, the uh, Iraq war was a disaster? Well, I, and I suppose my response is as weak and as strong as, as, as wait a while. Um, that we don't yet, and this is paraphrasing Joanne Lai, it's too early to tell whether the Iraq war worked. Now, I have, I have, uh, I'm not sure I would go into, into book length battle making that claim because I do see some weaknesses in it. But there but is the some, idea. There, there is some on. truth. I think that it's so what you're saying is that the ostensible reason for uh, beginning a conflict, that's ne- not necessarily going to be. Uh, repaired by the conflict itself. Does that make sense? Yes, it's like you, Poland wasn't in good shape, as you said, by 1960, but the the reason for going to war in, in the first place was that, if not justifiable, at least understandable. Yes, I, I think that that is a good way of putting it, that going to war on behalf of Poland has as much legitimacy as going to war on behalf of Iraqis in 2003. I mean, again, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's one that we should pay more attention to rather than rather than less. The the war itself, again, I'm not. Uh, it used to be that the Vietnam War was what divided scholars. It's now really very difficult to maintain a position that the Vietnam War was worth it. Though I think that's there's a there's a good argument that. Is missed if you if you bow to that consensus, but I think if you if you only analyse the Iraq War on the basis of the initial catastrophe of the occupation and or of the uh, emboldenment of Iran, then you you're missing I think some of the possible benefits, some of which you could claim have already been realised. 
first of all, I think, is the notion that it's not Arabs, Muslims are not preordained to live under bastards like Saddam Hussein. They are capable of better government. They're not culturally, psychologically, racially preordained to live under these kind of regimes. And this was given some, um, this was given a boost by the Arab Spring, which few uh, anticipated or expected, but which nevertheless caused, showed a capacity for political transformation that wouldn't have been apparent had America not gone into Iraq. Now, we know it foundered um, and it's not been smooth, but the end of the Libyan regime, um, that was a good thing. The ensuing catastrophe was an unwillingness of the Obama administration to actually stick around and help rebuild. Um, so it, it's not that it's only a story of disaster. Some processes were put in train, the benefits of which I still think are being worked through. Um, and it, uh, I think the great challenge that America has faced in the decades since Iraq has not been the Middle East generally, or that war particularly. It's been, first of all, in the first phase, global terrorism, which ended up having not much impact. Uh, the Iraq war had not much impact on that and loose credit um, and the global financial crisis of 2008 and then COVID. But these are all separate from Iraq. Um, what was Iraq is made to carry the blame for, for forces and defeats that, for which it is not, not accountable. What was the reason for the drone initiatives of the Obama administration? I mean, it's something I've never been able to square with the man. He's, he's such an admirable figure in so many ways, but at the same time, I just feel it will be a stain on his record. Um, but do you think that's you know, the cliche of uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats are two wings of the same political party? Do you think that would have happened regardless of who was president? Yes, I think Obama is better accorded the title of of hard power realist than he is of co cosmopolitan internationalist or whatever your particular caricature of his his role in history was that I, I argue this in the book that this is a man that comes to office with very little essentially no executive experience beyond running the harvard law review um He's not run a big state. He's got very, despite his international upbringing, he's got very little, if any, foreign policy expertise. I mean, compare him to George Bush Sr., who'd been ambassador to, to China and had led the CIA. He comes to the highest office in the land with a really thin CV, and he gets round that by buying into the national security consensus, which is dominant in 2008-9, and that is the war on terror. That, I mean, of course, he, he's anti the Iraq war, but he's anti the Iraq war not because he loves foreigners. He's anti the Iraq war because he thinks it's ruinous of the war on terrorism and the, the absolute imperative of denying to the enemy, the terrorists, a capacity to act on their ambition. And that's why he, so he's not, he's never hauled over the coals of some left-wing radical um, with, a, with an African 
Muslim name. Uh, he is, because he buys into the national security consensus, he's given a legitimacy and a, an ability to act and to become president, which would have been d- denied him otherwise. So he's a very, on this issue particularly, he was a very good reader of realistic power politics and what was necessary to survive. Now, his, his detractors won't have this. They see him as a kind of uh, non-white peacenik with all sorts of racial overtones built into that caricature. Or his um, proponents who want him to be the great community organiser-in-chief. And he was neither. Uh, he, he was a a realist who believed in killing terrorists as quickly as possible without recourse to judicial process and who was prepared to use military power when it was it was germane to american security and we i think we need to understand that in him um to make a fair assessment of what his contribution was it's sort of so frustrating when you talk to people about uh any politician uh, they're just so polarized on you're either completely for Obama or you're completely against Obama. You're either completely for Trump or you're completely against Trump and there's no nuance or assessment of the complexity of the situation, if that makes any sense. It's like no one, Obama is essentially either a hero or a... Um, yes, or a, yes or a, you make it. That's a good point. Mm. Yes, we're, the, the world is shades of grey, but we live in a, in, a, in a moment in world history where we prioritise black and white, almost literally, and, and a camp or an identity seems to be more important than nuance. You a bit, um, do, do you get worried by the the, the left's preoccupation with um, race and identity? I mean, certainly under the guise of equality uh, and, uh, you know, egalitarianism and stuff, but the there seems to be a sense that the identity politics on the left in particular isn't necessarily arguing for a colourblind society. They're, they're arguing for the importance of race rather than the irrelevance of race. Yes, I, I would agree with your your explanation of where the debate sits. That the, the the great problem is not the motivation. I mean, who doesn't want to see a world of racial harmony? the The issue is now with the means, and the means that I think have been chosen by a large section of the of the liberal left require the re-racialization of issues that if there is bad racism you counter that with good racism but it's still racism to the point where i think the great hero of of, of all races martin luther king is now increasingly marginalised, if not chastised. He would seem like, a, he, he'd seem like a centrist almost in today's climate. Yes. But he, he wants uh, men and women to prosper on the basis of their character, not their colour. And somewhere along the line, along the lines, um, we've lost that his, his that the inspiration that under, underlay that, that claim um, and it's been about in reintroducing race as a as the key tool for the correcting of historical injustices. Now, I, I would caution, and I'm not alone in doing this, that the, 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 the idea that you can correct historical injustices by repeating some of the psychoses of the unjust 
practice is themselves is heading towards problematic territory. To say the least. Um, I mean, yes. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a conflict, of course, which is, applies across the West, and Australia has its own refracted racial conflict. But in America, it, the difference is the system itself and which Martin Luther King sought to be included in um, is one founded on the notion of individual rights and the rule of law. You can't then solve some of the imperfections of that system by abandoning individual rights in favour of identity rights or allowing rule by accusation instead of rule by law. Um, I can see why psychologically it's, it's kind of affirming that you, you see America as a great unjust, uh, project of injustice. So where you see injustice, you seek to correct it. That's not the way the system has worked and prospered to this point. Um, the American constitutional order, again, imperfectly, but its basic trajectory is with each successive generation embracing more and more people and more and more rights claims. Now, I think problematically, the left, are seeking to subvert the order itself. Um, and there is protection for no one in that system. It's ruled by arbitrary force. It's ruled by claims of historical truth, which can never be fully realized or, 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 uh, or justified. That's, that's, that's my fear of where America is going. But I'd also balance that just by the observation that America is a, is a land founded in protest that I think there are parallels between Black Lives Matter and the men that threw the tea into Boston Harbour. Um, there, is a, there is a history of protest against established power, which is long in the United States. And that's I have some doubts about that as an, as a, an all-encompassing explanation. But the idea that America at some point would suddenly decide that they had enough rights that government had enough power and everything would be fine. That's ahistorical. What seems more dangerous about the rhetoric on the left, I feel, is that I viewed the right and the left as having the same flaws when it comes to collectivist ideology, but the left almost uh, comes forward with these ideas under the facade of academia. Um, and yes, so, it's, uh... so it's sort of it's, it's, it's much harder for... Left-wing vices have much better PR than right-wing vices. Yes. I mean, I, yes, I'd be sympathetic to that, that we're in a moment of identity politics in which one side of the argument commands the, the cultural heights. Um, so the, the universities as generators of... of um, the creative classes of government of the arts um, seem, pre I mean, not exclusively, because I think there are pockets of great scepticism towards this approach, but clearly there is a, there is a left-wing tendency amongst academia and then the products, uh, those sectors of the economy and society, which are products of academia. Um, it just seems like... One, one notion of identity politics, but the other, just to, before you come back, the other side is also an identity politics, which is one grounded in a, in a grievance that the left will not acknowledge that 
we were once we I'm, I'm talking you know, a white working class I mean pick your particular disaffected demographic but one which was culturally economically socially predominant and there no longer is but both are forms of identity politics but on universities go university campuses the only vocabulary that we understand or the only vocabulary we're obliged to empathize with sympathize with is is that of um which meets left wing concerns so the language of the vocabulary of the white working class is simply racist and therefore capable of being dismissed mm. now i think uh, i think both need to be brought into balance if you're going to have identity politics which favors the the concerns for justice of non-whites at some level you're going to have to engage with a white population which feels a similar sense of injustice and alienation mm. and it seems that at least historically we know where the right goes too far as soon as they become preoccupied with racial identification racial superiority you know the 1940s were enough of a lesson uh, forever but it's a lot harder to articulate where the left is going um, is going wrong uh, and that's where we i feel we get these culture wars is it takes a much more nuanced approach to understand whether uh, the concerns of the left are justified or not if that makes sense yes it yes it does um i i think it an important what what seems to have been lost is the notion that rights are are on national constructs so much of of modern left-wing identity politics is founded in this notion that there are universal injustices universal sources of oppression where the lesson of history seems to me is that some rights get better upheld dependent on the the governmental system the national system which is doing the the upholding and some are degraded because those national systems seek to degrade them or aren't capable of upholding them so that's a very long-winded way of saying the american experiment is one of of protected limited rights in which um the individual matters more than the collective and it's been highly successful as a nationalistic project grounded in those terms you can't then simply realize the benefits of individual freedom by disavowing national experiments and yet the left seems to be on an uh, on an agenda which one of the first points of principle is to decry nationalism that australia is a is is bad and wicked and must be atoned for america the same british imperialism the same now there's not to deny there weren't some horrible aspects of the application of national power um as they affected all sorts of groups but also we need to recognize that the rights upheld um within that american political tradition come from national power and it's national power um in the second world war and in the cold war which defeats the, these claims to universalist power grounded in some socialist ideology so a, a clever left winger would be able to ground their rights concerns within a national project and they're not they're much more concerned at invalidating nationalism and, and of, of national histories than they are of of finding a strategic resource in them that was almost perfectly embodied i feel by the 
uh, attempted destruction of the statue of Winston Churchill. Yes, it does. I mean, that that, that level of historical myopia. I mean, of course, we're not arguing that uh, Churchill was was a kind of a Obama-esque lover of multiculturalism. He was a man of his time. And even if you disputed that, he is the the greatest anti-fascist in world history. The idea that that legacy would take second place to some of his psychological predispositions on, on race seems to me so historically amnesiac and naive. Um, and I just, I just yes. felt like when I yes. saw, when I, you know, you hear people criticize Winston Churchill, especially if they're at a Black Lives Matter protest, it's like, do you really think you would be here right now if it weren't for this man? Do you think a Black Lives Matter protest would be possible were it not for this man? And yes, it is. A, it's one of the great ironies is that th- those targets of, of vilification now. Um, were also hugely consequential in creating the rights that make the vilification possible. Mm. Um, you wouldn't be pulling down statues of Mao Zedong no. <laughs> in Beijing, even though I think <laughs> measured on, on a very crude humanitarian basis, I think Mao is probably responsible for more deaths, certainly of his own people, than Winston Churchill ever was. So there is a I mean, it's a, it needs to have long-range causes. The fact that we don't teach history well um, is is a real loss because it robs men and women of the, of the essential nuance, the capacity to understand shades of grey, which makes for, for a much happier life. doesn't mean you have to accommodate yourself to injustice. I mean, injustice is basically the human condition. But the idea it has simple solutions, and the less we know about history, the better we can correct it. Seems to to me just an absurd, such a fool's errand. Such an inversion of what you'd typically think is the way to work towards a better world. I saw uh, Douglas Murray uh, made the same point that we're so just historically naive uh, these days, and he made the point about uh, the statue of Churchill that there's no redemptive quality to um, the culture on the left, and he showed that the staring down of the or the attack of the statue of Winston Churchill was just an example of doesn't matter what you do, no matter how, even if you save the entire world uh, from, yes. you know, a Nazi empire, your whatever your sins were, they will not be forgiven. Yes. Uh, yes, I think I, th- uh, I think he's right on that. that it, it, identity politics increasingly has a kind of religious fervour um, ironically, in the absence of of of, of God and and uh, metaphysical faith, mm. but an absolute fervor which says if you transgress in any one of the ways in which we think, uh, if you commit any of these sins, it invalidates everything else that you might do. And this just has huge problematic. Con- it 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 demands the impossible standard that men and women that go into politics have been perfect in this very arbitrarily constructed left-wing test. Um, and I just don't think that perfection, this requirement of perfection in in politics, in government, is, 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 is a tenable proposition. But you're right to say there's no redemption. It used to be that uh, Johnny Cash, great musician, songwriter, they were about a man, often a man falling, but finding some redemptive 
capacity, summoning up some reserve. And I don't see that. I don't see that's allowable any longer. That if you commit one of these heresies, everything else that you do, you can't correct that. And everything else that you do is going to be seen in that light. Well, that creates creates the tensions and injustices that ironically identity politics is meant to, to, to solve and salve. Um, but I, irony is one of the first casualties, of course, in this, in this, uh, in, in identity politics, that the capacity for nuance on which irony depends increasingly is being lost. And I even find it bizarre the claims that they make against Churchill that they say he abandoned Bengal during the famine when it's like, well, at the height of World War Two, you've got all of Russia, all of Europe. Uh, against you on a little island. And I think your obligations to your colonies uh, are sort of superseded by, you know, the threat of global yes. hegemony by, by the Nazis. And then they'll yes, say, I'm, they'll, they'll I'm, say, they'll say there was a line, you know, uh, he, he famously said, don't worry about the Indians. They breed like rabbits. Well, if he'd said that publicly, that's reprehensible. But I mean, in a, in a private conversation for that not to be redeemable by your actions uh, in saving yes. the world is just ridiculous. Yes, I, I have some sympathy with that. That that um, a racist, certainly by a modern de- definition, yes, of course. But is that the only standard by which we measure his contribution? Um, is the fact that he's white the only? He happens to be white. The most consequential thing about him. Well, I would say no. Is is the fact that Shakespeare or Dickens were white men? the most consequential thing about them and what they produce. And I would say, please, God, no. In lots of respect, I'm not saying that, that race and gender aren't important categories, but do they explain everything to the point where you can eradicate them from right out their historical contribution, condemn them? I have huge uh, scepticism towards that, that particular approach. And if the, if the humanity is only dwelt upon if it's if it's a white leader and a black population a non-white population the level of condescension required in that analysis that the the, the indian uh, path to independence was marked by huge um bloodshed and war i think the creation of of pakistan from india in 47 48 this, these were, I mean, you could say, well, it's all down to white, nefarious white men in London. Well, in a, in a very simplistic reading, you'd make that claim. But if your interest is historical nuance and understanding truth, then you'd have to apply the same standard against leaders, regardless of whether they were men or whether they were white or whether they were black. And we seem to have lost the vocabulary that makes that possible. Mm. Do you think Biden will be a transformative president? Oh, well. Especially in relation to uh, China. What was, give me a definition of transform, transformational president. Who was transformational? Well, I mean it in a, in a positive, positive way, not in. I well, mean, I mean, I, I, yes, whether you. Will he, whether will he, will he, negative, re- I, will I, he rectify the disunity? Will he rectify the disunity between America? Will he uh, re-establish 
uh, America's dominance on the world stage uh, and uh, the respect that I think Trump took from that uh, in just his careless and cavalier approach to geopolitics. Well, not geopolitics, but PR. Yes, it's a it's an important question. I suppose I'd, I'd preface it by my answer by saying that most presidents come to offer, come to office, promising transformation, and most leave having not fulfilled it. And the same is true of Biden. I think Biden's great advantage, and it was something that John Sopel, the former British North American BBC North American editor, said. The difference, the advantage Biden has is that for for four years, Americans and much of the rest of the world have been locked in a car with heavy metal blaring at top volume. This is the Trump administration. Biden only has to come in and put on some, turn the volume down and put on some easy listening hits. And he's already realized greater comfort for for the passengers. So simply by not being Trump, that might be as much transformation as, as he's able to muster. I suppose what I'd also ask you to consider, though, Julius, is that there have been a series of men that have occupied uh, that office since the end of the Cold War. He's now the sixth since the end of the Cold War. And they've all encountered the office in uh, as, uh, the, the office is common across all of them. And the performance of most of them has ended in failure. I think all of them, you'd say, have been political failures. That the American system, at any moment in its history, but particularly now, isn't set up for transformation. It's a glacial process to get change realised. And when change comes across its history, it comes as a matter of consensus. So great presidents are able to either act on or forge a consensus, like Franklin Roosevelt. I think I'd even argue up through Ronald Reagan. In the absence of consensus, you get dissensus, you get uh, partisanship. The 1960s were prone to that, and the, and the noughties and the tens and into the twenties have been very prone to this uh, polarization. Because there is an absence of consensus, and Biden is as as unlikely to realize a new consensus as Trump was, in part because I don't I think the expectations of the office being able to do that are far greater than the societal, political, cultural system, which at the, at the moment is 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 deeply polarized. So putting your faith in one man, eventually one woman, is always going to be a bit of a fool's errand, I think. I found it quite surprising. Well, uh, people on the right, I feel their main criticism of Biden that uh, he would lack teeth as a president and that he would be uh, just a bumbling fool of a uh, of a leader, especially when it comes to foreign policy. But I was quite surprised uh, to see his first uh, foreign policy address about two or three weeks ago, uh, and he came out full guns blazing against uh, Putin's treatment of Navalny, uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs and people in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, and he seemed to almost continue continue the stance of the Trump administration uh, when it comes to these things. He seemed just as aggressive yes. in that sense, which I found yes, quite, I, quite I, relating. I think continuity is often is often 
yes, yeah, so continuity is often missed in this sort of stampede towards transformational change. But he's because of the system that any president occupies, he's much more likely to continue what his predecessor did because it's it's too hard to turn a huge ship round, huge oil tanker round as quickly as their own partisans expect them to do. So they tend to, and this is true of Trump, true of Obama, and is and will be true of Biden, they prioritise American national interests. They will talk the language of humanitarianism as it applies to the Uyghurs or the Syrians. Donald Trump, we often forget, attacked Syria twice, almost exactly 12 years apart in 2017 and 2018, because he was offended by um, how how the, the Syrian government was treating its people. Um, so this concern with American security wrapped in the language of universalism, of humanitarianism, is a common feature across so many presidents. And I'm trying to think of one that actually um, is an exception to that rule. Uh, they all believe in the maintenance of American power. None put their hand up and, saying, I, and say, I am here to lead America's decline. None say, I think we need to give more of American sovereignty away to the United Nations to realize American power, security, and jobs. Um, they're all invested in the US project of left and right. And this will be true of Kamala Harris. Um, it will be true of any left-wing president as it's true of any conservative president. That's part of I think, the, the genius, of, genius of the system, that America's strength, as we discussed a little earlier, is dependent on the maintenance of the national project, not on its replacement by some transnational experiment. Uh, and that's what separates some of the left in the United States from some of the left outside it. That much of the left, whether it's on Ligon Street in Melbourne or in Paris or in London, they all in some way have adapted themselves to being members of weak powers middle powers at best, or previously important powers that have been replaced by the United States. Whereas the American left, at least the thinking American left, has an interest in winning and securing political power, understands how important the national project is. Um, so that still that gives me hope that there is enough consensus organically structured in the American experiment to give it legs over the next several decades, if not several centuries. It's almost like that to what you were saying about the importance of uh, the left coming to agree with the national project. There's Roger Scruton coined a term uh, in the early 2000s called oikophobia, meaning uh, hatred of one's own cultural civilization. Mm. Um, and mm. America's greatest weakness, I think, is that they're – uh, their people don't rejoice in their existence, whereas the CCP uh, or um, even Russia, despite their GDP being lower than America's, their army being weaker than America's, they have that at least that strength of their their people are more f freely able to be nationalistic than America's. Yes, are. I think that's a it's a an important question that has a that. It, that requires some thinking about in order to answer. But often the fallback in those systems you've mentioned, Russia and China, the fallback is nationalism. So when 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 
ordinary Russians or ordinary Chinese are required to mobilize, they mobilize in defense of the motherland, of Mother Russia, or of Mother China, of the, of the, the Middle Kingdom. They're, they're not asked to mobilize in defense of an ideological experiment. Um, whereas the United States both are married, the national experiment is also the ideological one. There is no United States without its the imposition of an ideological experiment. Uh, it doesn't exist before its revolution. China and Russia do. They are nations before they indulge this the, the their their fetish for for socialism. Um, and in some ways, I think they're cognizant of that when they have to mobilize great national power. Was America's great strength is it does both. You can be a proud American and a proud exponent of the contract, the legal contract, the constitution, which is the experiment that you've signed up to. Um, it doesn't make it unique in world history, but it gives it a certain robustness that all the other ideological challenges that it's faced don't have. That's interesting because you'd think that China and Russia were uh, more built on the uh, ideologies or ideas of their revolution, but in fact, America is much no. uh, more yeah. synchronized in yeah. its, its birth as a country and its yes. revolutionary ideals. Yes, that's that's a very good point, and I, I think uh, Russians, Soviets, the Chinese communists are much more wary of the subversion inherent in the American experiment than Americans are of the subversion inherent in the communist experiment. And that's why China is always skeptical of US power, because it is a far greater threat to it than China is a threat to America. What do you think motivates Trump? It's one of the big questions I've, I've constantly wondered. It's like, it, it doesn't even seem, there doesn't even seem a desire to be a desire to uh, even pseudo-monarchical ambitions. He doesn't seem like he cares about his uh, kids taking over. There's nothing nepotistic about it. But at the same time, he doesn't seem power-hungry in the same way that uh, Hillary Clinton does. Uh, I just I, I can't tell what, what's motivating him to, you know, bring the whole world crashing down around him uh, and, you know, what he thinks justifies that. Well, I think Trump, I mean, every man, eventually woman, that holds that office is required to have quite a robust ego. But what I think you got in Trump was almost, a, it was the ego unchained or it was the ego exclusive of other motivations. I've heard it said that most men will, most people will pursue notoriety in order to win political power. Whereas Trump pursued political power in order to secure his notoriety. Um, this makes him in some way containable and explicable because the only thing he wants to do is maintain his own presence in the debate. He doesn't actually want to do anything that has lasting consequence, except in insofar as that legacy is refracted in, in himself. So you're right, he doesn't put in place institutional mechanisms to make Trumpism the unavoidable feature of the American political landscape for decades to come. Trumpism is Trump and his willingness to engage. And when Trump fades and dies, as happens to most politicians given enough time, 
Trumpism may morph into something else, but it will lack that central key ingredient. Um, Trumpism isn't liberalism. Liberalism gets handed on, requires its heroes, but they embed and establish a tradition which continues. Trump stands outside. I mean, you can say there is some nativist tradition that he was able to articulate, but his, the whole point of his political career is the glorification of himself, which is why you're right. It's not even a nepotistic project. It's not about clearing the way for Junior or for Ivanka. Um, they're incidental players in, in this drama, which is, which is Donald Trump. That gives me some, uh, some confidence that when he does fade, a lot of the psychoses, a lot of the extremism um, will fade, fade with him. It's all, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. Um, great presidents em, embody and, and establish traditions which their successors are obliged to operate within the terms of. I don't think that's as true of Trump. Really don't. Um, Nixon it, is, it, 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 it is quite comforting, though, to think that uh, there isn't a pervasive ideology that springs from Trump. It is just Trump himself. And that yes. once he's gone, yes. I, I don't really know who. The, um, yes. Yes, you're right. I mean, Reagan is, you could see Reagan's, he, he was the heir of a f philosophical lineage. You don't explain Reagan without reference to Barry Goldwater. Um, but Trump, I mean, Trump in some way, because he's independently, I mean, independent of the political system, rich, he didn't require um, any sort of, he didn't have to buy into any particular wing of the Republican Party. In a moment of intellectual exhaustion, he was able to clean up. It doesn't make him heir to something deeper. The left, to go back to our, our nemesis uh, in, in, in this conversation, the left, again, broadly construed, always want him to represent something deeper and darker and more deep-rooted. And I don't think he does. I think the loonies that invaded the Capitol on January the 6th were just that. They were disconnected, disaffected, alienated for lots of reasons, loonies. They weren't the manifestation of some new form of conservatism, seeking to, to walk back the gains of progressive politics. They were a desperate cry, a flickering candle, not the manifestation of some new wave that you require a, a ruthless identity politics to counter. Um, so I, again, I, I remain confident, not limitlessly confident, but confident nonetheless, that we're not, we're moving out of a period of profound polarization rather than moving in to an even deeper trench within it. But I, I could be wrong. It is possible. Maybe on that note, um, we'll wrap this podcast up. Um, thanks a lot for coming on, Tim. I've been a really interesting conversation and illuminating and yeah really appreciate it it's been a great pleasure um good luck i look forward to to seeing and hearing the other guests that are part of this very interesting series thanks julius terrific thanks tim see ya